Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. From accusations of embracing socialism leveled at the Obama administration by the Tea Party movement, to the rise of self-proclaimed democratic socialist Bernie Sanders as the second highest vote-getter in the 2016 and 2020 Democratic Party primaries, socialism has been an emerging movement and topic of conversation in the American body politic. While polling data suggests that socialism is generally still viewed far less favorably than capitalism or free markets overall, the younger millennial and Generation Z generations are more embracing of socialism than generations before them. Similarly, those younger generations are more likely than their forebearers to be among the N-O-N-E nuns those who proclaim no religious affiliation and no religious or spiritual beliefs. Is socialism filling in for the human religious impulse, allowing people to feel a part of something larger than themselves without embracing the concepts of God and church? Today, I speak with Kevin Williamson, roving correspondent for National Review and author of the 2010 book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism, about the emergence of socialism in American politics and the spiritual role it seems to play now and has historically played for its proponents. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash acton line. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined today by Kevin Williamson. Kevin is the roving correspondent for National Review and the author of The Smallest Minority, Independent Thinking in an Age of Mob Politics. His email newsletter, The Tuesday, is published coincidentally on Tuesdays. Along with Charles C.W. Cook, he hosts the podcast Mad Dogs and Englishmen. He is also the author of the 2010 book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism. He has the feature article in the August 24th edition of National Review entitled The Celestial Afterlife of Karl Marx. Kevin Williamson, welcome to Acton Line. Hey, how are you? Doing well, thank you. So I think for this conversation, it may be helpful to start at the very beginning. You wrote a book in 2010 on socialism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you define socialism, particularly in context of the difference that defenders of the idea like to make in saying that there's a difference between socialism and communism, as was practiced, and wanting to draw a line, say, between Nordic countries that practice the kind of socialism they want to emulate and just the bad things that were done in the name of communism. Yeah. So my, uh, my standing line about that is the difference between communism and socialism is that under socialism, politics ends with a gun in your face. And under communism, politics begins with a gun in your face. Um, socialism is central planning. That's what I mean by socialism. And so to that extent, yeah, when we're talking about what's going on in Norway, Sweden, uh, Finland, places like that, we're not talking about socialism. We're talking about 
Northern European countries with big welfare states and high taxes. Now, those create different sets of problems and different sets of policy challenges. And there are reasons to think that those kinds of policies probably wouldn't produce the same kinds of results in the United States that they have in, say, Iceland, which is a very different kind of country. But those problems are not the problems of socialism. They're a different set of problems. So I tend to think that um, those countries are mostly pretty well governed. And there are some things probably to be learned from them, even if it's um, even if they don't have policies that we can necessarily replicate or uh, duplicate in the United States. Uh, but I think the kind of uh, traditional right-wing talk radio rhetoric of Europe as being some kind of, you know, quasi-Marxist hellscape is just not really very well borne out by experience, you know, being there. These are pretty happy, well-governed countries. Where the left gets this stuff wrong is they just completely ignored what's been going on in the Nordic countries since the 1970s and the 1980s, where they've undergone a series of important and deep market-based reforms. They've retrenched their welfare states to a certain extent. They have very free and open economies, uh, very free trade, a lot of entrepreneurship, that sort of thing. But they do have very high taxes. So that's not what we're talking about. When we're talking about socialism, we're talking about having the government actually plan the economy. We're having talking about having the government actually try to operate uh, means of production or treat them as though it owns them. So, you know, obvious examples are places like North Korea and Cuba, but also Venezuela. And then you can also look at things like um, examples of central planning within otherwise market-oriented or non-socialist economies. As an example, you know, most of the world's state-run oil firms uh, tend to exhibit the kinds of problems that we associate with socialist government and socialist programs and socialist central planning. So why do you think the that misunderstanding, whether it's willful or just a true misunderstanding, seems to exist in proponents of socialism, that they advocate for an idea in name that uh, if we give them a good reading, they don't seem to mean in practice. If we're told we should emulate you know, Sweden as an example of the kind of socialism that they would desire in America, and I think as you noted, that could be fraught for reasons having entirely to do with not being a country the size of Sweden with a homogeneous population like Sweden has. Um, why, why is there that confusion that seems to exist between socialism as the concept they advocate for and, and what they actually point to as example? Yeah, I sometimes suspect we make too much of the homogeneity argument of those countries. Um, you know, Switzerland, which has a very free economy, is not a very homogeneous country at all and also still exhibits a lot of the virtues that we associate with the Nordic countries, you know, high levels of cooperation, that sort of thing. So I think people say I'm a socialist because it's a way of saying I'm serious, I'm a radical, I really care. Um, it's a it's a word that functions as a kind of mascot and a signifier rather than as a real um, descriptor of what people believe. Um, in the same way that you see, uh, and it's also a way to distinguish people who see themselves as the vanguard from the, uh, from the more moderate compromising uh, party establishments, which are hated on both sides, of course. So the rights version of this is nationalism. And um, the funny thing about that is we don't actually have a lot of nationalists on the right. We have these funny kind of nationalists who don't actually like anything about the United States. They're nationalists except for California, New York, Wall Street, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, the Ivy League, the media, uh, most of the Fortune 500, and everything except, you know, basically hog farmers in Oklahoma. 
So they're a funny kind of nationalists. Well, nationalists who also seem to point a lot to Europe these days, which, you know, the kind of conservatism that I came up with uh, would have been fighting words. Yeah, I think uh, that, that's certainly uh, part of the case, too. But it, 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 it performs the same function of a way of saying, I really care about this. I'm really serious. I'm not one of these moderate, compromising, Mitt Romney, go along, get along types. You know, I really, really mean it. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that socialism is a real thing, and socialism does have some real adherence and some real partisans, and it does have some real attractions for certain kinds of people. And the ways in which socialist thinking really seep into American politics aren't typically so much, um, you know, the Venezuelan model as they are this kind of neo-socialist central planning model of using regulation as a proxy for public ownership. So, um, for instance, Elizabeth Warren has argued over time that um, she thinks companies should have to get a federal charter to operate, that this should be, um, it should have political uh, conditions attached to it. The government should be able to dictate to companies the composition of the boards and uh, compensation terms, uh, terms of employment, this kind of stuff. So you're talking about a situation in which the government may not actually technically own the firms, but it certainly behaves in a uh, you know quasi proprietary proprietary way, and uh, this is different from your traditional kinds of regulation, which are um, in theory anyway not explicitly political in their ends. You know, if we say that we want to have X, Y, and Z pollution standards, um, that's a reasonable thing for a government to do. But it's not the same thing as saying, and we're going to say who's going to be on your board to show you how to comply with this. And these are very very different kinds of things. So that same socialist temptation, as uh, Ian Murray calls it, seeps into our thinking in other ways. And, um, and again, it's not just, it's not exclusively on the left. There's a great deal of distrust of free markets, free trade, um, international commerce on the right as well. And as my friend Jonah Goldberg sometimes likes to say that um, there's no difference between an industry that's been socialized and one that's been nationalized. Uh, ultimately, these mean the same things. You can call yourself a socialist or you can call yourself a nationalist, but if government is dictating to firms the conditions under which they may do business, including, say, buying imports, uh, procuring commodities abroad, uh, outsourcing certain kinds of work and labor, then you are back into at least a foot into the, uh, the pool of central planning, at least a toe in. Survey data, particularly of millennials and members of Generation Z, have shown that socialism... Uh, at least they answer that uh, they're more favorable to socialism than previous generations have indicated. Do you yeah. think that they are favorable to any of the actual ideas of socialism, as you've outlined, or is it far more of this kind of radical pose that they wish to strike as the, the rebels and the avant-garde of their generation? Yeah, basically asking someone if they're a socialist on a survey given to American college students on a campus somewhere is the equivalent of asking them if they're cool. You know, are you cool? Sure, I'm cool. Uh, that's, there's no intellectual content, I think. Um, millennials and Gen Zers are no different from the great majority of the American population in that they don't think very hard about politics. They treat it essentially as a club, you know, kind of a gang. And uh, that's always been a normal part of democratic politics, this, you know, what we sometimes call identity politics, but the politics of social group affiliation. What's happened in our time is that this normal 
subset of politics has essentially create, crowded out everything else. So, you know, your political identity now is essentially what kind of person are you? Are you a good person? Or are you a bad person? And those are the only two choices. And each camp sort of wants to have to communicate the other. This makes it very, very difficult to talk about policy questions, and it makes it very difficult to come up with consensus positions. And of course, the people who call themselves socialists and the people who call themselves nationalists are both very anti-consensus, anti-compromise, um, anti-moderation. And uh, that makes you know, actual governing and, uh, and policy progress difficult. One of the things that is really very successful about the Nordic countries and also Switzerland and Germany and some places like that is that partly for cultural reasons, but also partly for reasons of the way their governments are designed, big changes in social policy require a great deal of buy-in and a great deal of consensus. It's hard to get anything done politically in Switzerland if, you know, two-thirds to 70 or 75 percent of the population doesn't really agree with it. And if an even smaller group than that really strongly disagrees with it, it's, it's quite difficult to get anything done. So as a result, they've got a very stable policy environment because they've got a lot of social buy-in, a lot of political buy-in from different parties, different political tendencies, different parts of the country, different socioeconomic groups. And that makes it a lot easier to operate. In the United States, we've got the opposite, where, um, you know, if your party wins the presidency and a majority in Congress at the same time, you can essentially do anything you want. And um, so we see things like the 2008 election, Barack Obama comes in, they make some pretty big unpopular changes to the healthcare system, and they pass the bill as though that settles the question. And of course, we're still hashing this stuff out. There's still litigation. Uh, the Affordable Care Act has never actually been fully implemented. Um, the Democrats themselves have peeled away some parts of it. Republicans were able to block some parts of it. So you get this really unstable policy environment, which makes this kind of Hayekian virtuous cycle very difficult to get into, where people are able to make long-term decisions about how to allocate capital, how to make certain kinds of economic decisions because they know what the policy environment is going to look like. And in the United States, people don't really know what the policy environment is going to look like. So on the one hand, we're having these screaming hysterical arguments about whether the top income tax rate is going to be 39% or 35%. Um, on the other hand, we can't get enough stability in policy to really um, have a health insurance system that, that functions in a, in a healthy and productive way. So I follow you entirely on the idea of asking college students if they're socialists is the equivalent of asking them if they're cool. But I, I have another theory that uh, I think you had touched on in your uh, podcast with Charles Cook, um, that as we've seen in the millennials and Gen Z, the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who do not have a declared religious affiliation, mm -hmm. um, and in most cases may give the kind of similar I'm cool answer, answer of uh, I'm spiritual, um, which is often a stand-in for, you know, I don't want to say I'm an atheist, but I don't really understand what I believe and haven't thought too much about it. Um, I, I've wondered, I know others have too, if this idea of socialism really is a stand-in for giving them something to be a part of that's larger than themselves, that we have this instinct to be religious, and that if we're not filling it with religion, we're going to seek to fill it elsewhere. And socialism, in the idea of, you know, that it's we're all socialized, we're all in it together, gives them the opportunity to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Yeah, I mean, to put it in explicitly Christian terms, I think that... Um 
the most interesting and dangerous condition of American politics right now essentially is an idolatry of the state that we built a kind of uh, a kind of secular democratic version of the old Roman imperial cult. And if you look at our rhetoric about presidents, especially the way we talk about them, the increasingly ceremonial nature uh, of the office, it's, um, it's something that's taken on a, a pretty, I think, obviously religious cast. So my book, The Smallest Minority, is about this in large part, where um, there are a number of things that have changed for us socially, culturally, and economically that have made us better off in material terms but have been disruptive socially. And uh, this is a difficult trade-off to make, and it's hard to really appreciate trade-offs if you don't understand what's actually being traded off. So there's been a decline in a number of things that used to give people a real sense of social belonging, community, status, which people are very much driven by. And those were things like, you know, family, marriage, parenthood, church, uh, local community organizations, local community ties, that sort of thing. So we get married less often, get married a lot later in life than we used to. We have fewer children. Um, more of us don't have any children at all. We tend to have those later in life as well. Americans don't actually move as much for work as they used to and as they probably should. But the American elite, which really sets the cultural tone, is very, very mobile, moves a lot. Um, we go to church less than we used to, which I think is a big part of it. So a number of these things that used to give people a sense of who they are and how they relate to other people, what their place in the world is, have been either eliminated or attenuated or put off until much later in life when all sorts of other habits and, um, and aspects of, of the way you live and the way you think about the way you live have already been developed. And into that void has poured this particularly banal and uh, just embarrassingly stupid form of partisanship as, as social identity. Now, if you look at, um, you know, the psychological research and that kind of stuff, one of the interesting things you find is that the people who have the strongest feelings about the people on the other side tend to be the ones who actually have the least information about policy questions and about what their own side believes. And, um, you know, you, you saw this in uh, the Barack Obama campaign where, um, a lot of people on the left just couldn't accept the fact that um, he was running as a candidate opposed to gay marriage. And they consistently identified him as a guy who was in favor of gay marriage, no matter how many times he said the opposite, because they've got this view of the world, well, he's on my side, he must agree with me on things, the policy stuff will kind of take care of itself. So a lot of that, of course, on the other side in 2016 with Trump, um, who conveniently has been on every conceivable side of every conceivable issue, so you can always find one answer you like and one that you don't uh, when it comes to him. So um, this kind of, a, you know, identity-driven, community-driven, and emotion-driven politics can really overwhelm rational thinking. It can certainly overwhelm questions about, well, what's a really good, you know, regulatory design uh, method? How should we go about thinking about the trade-offs and incentives when we want to regulate the price of health insurance or the terms on which it's made available? Um, these are conversations to be had that um, don't end in we're the good guys and you're the evil guys. Um, or if they do in that way, you haven't gotten to the point of the conversation. So there are a lot of things that we need to do politically in terms of actual governance and in terms of getting ourselves into a place in our political culture where governance is again possible. Because right now it's just a, um, it's an almost purely ceremonial process, which is why there's this national madness um, every year or every four years 
uh, on behalf of whichever 45% of the population belongs to the party that's not currently in power in the White House. Um, it's, it's a dangerous thing for us as a country. You know, I'm not, you know, one of these people who said we're on the verge of a civil war and all that kind of stuff. I hate that sort of silly rhetoric, but if you can't manage kind of basic governance, uh, and I think among other things, the coronavirus epidemic is showing us that we're not really particularly good at that, along with the riots and the other stuff that's going on right now, then you are you know, in for some very rough times as a society if you can't do the basic things. And increasingly, I think we're finding it difficult to do the basic things. Things look a lot better at the um, local level, and they certainly look a lot better at the local level outside of the big cities that are essentially you know, the size of European countries like New York and Los Angeles. But, um, you know, across the board, though, there's a lot to be be concerned about. Do you think socialism has always performed some kind of a stand-in role for a form of spirituality? Um, and do you think that the decrease that we're seeing in religious affiliation opens up the door for it to be, uh, to move beyond just the I'm cool signaling into something people more substantively accept and advocate for within their politics as a stand-in for the spiritual inclinations that they probably have? Yeah, I think socialism has been particularly successful in providing some alternatives to traditional religious identity because it's got all the ingredients. You know, it's got esoteric knowledge, it's got sacred texts, it's got a prophet, uh, it's got a lot of very good iconography. Uh, they're awfully good at that sort of thing. And, um, you know, if you look at the, um, you know, tradition of socialist realist art, um, there's a certain feeling to a lot of this stuff that you could imagine it having being painted in a church around the same time, um, in, at least in certain parts of the world. And um, so socialism offers those things. It offers a, a communion the way religion does as well. And it also offers a, um, a, a kind of transcendental narrative. So it's a way for people to situate themselves morally and ethically in the universe. And it answers those questions in a kind of comprehensive, dogmatic way. And uh, that is, um, to me, really quite interesting. And one of the things I've observed, and I've written a number of different articles about this in, in the United States and in the Western world more generally, are these you know, periodic attempts to essentially reinvent Christianity without the um, inconvenient you know, moral and sexual stuff that, that we moderns don't like about Christianity. And the great example of this is um, American Buddhism, which is very different from Buddhism in the rest of the world. And it's, um, you know, it's got an apostolic succession. They make a big deal about this guy's teacher was this guy, whose teacher was this guy, whose teacher was that guy. They're very into the, you know, robes and incense and titles and that kind of stuff. They've essentially invented a kind of, you know, uh, a kind of light Catholicism for people who um, are uncomfortable with the... Uh, European aspects of Catholicism and with the more demanding uh, moral aspects of it. And of course, there are a lot of quite demanding moral aspects in, in Buddhism, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism traditionally, which have been more or less ejected in the American context. In Tibetan Buddhism, and the Dalai Lama used to talk about this a lot, um, homosexuality is a real issue. I mean, it's, you know, it's considered forbidden, um, essentially for the same reasons that it would be in Christian, you know, kind of natural law thinking that it's, you know, contrary to the purpose for which the body was designed. And uh, that used to be something that Tibetan Buddhists in the West talked about quite a bit, uh, no longer is. And that is, I think, you know, kind of knuckling under the social reality 
of the um, moral demands and the class that the people who belong to that faith in the West come from. In the beginning of your feature article in the August 24th edition of National Review, you begin talking about Black Lives Matter. It strikes mm-hmm. me as you were kind of detailing those very religious aspects of socialism, that we see those aspects present within that movement as well, that there is a concept of original sin, that there is, uh, you see the videos of people asking for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and though it strikes oh, we're me- in uh, right. Uh, although it, it, what strikes me as interesting is an observation that a friend of mine helped put the second half to a while ago, that uh, this was more an observation from about cancel culture, I think, than about this particular movement, is that we seem to live in a time um, without forgiveness, but with perpetual atonement. Um, it, do, do you see the socialism that kind of informed the founders, or at least the Marxism that informed the founders of Black Lives Matter. Um, do, do you think we see these characteristics in the Black Lives Matter movement as a result of that, or have they just kind of taken on this form kind of organically? Well, I think that the attraction of um, Marx's analysis for groups like Black Lives Matter is that um, it's based at heart on a, on a pretty simplistic notion of taking power yourself, um, you know, in a, in a direct and um, and uh, personal kind of way, and uh, I can see why that would be attractive to to an organization like that. And while I certainly um, have my disagreements with them about policy questions and much else, the uh, the fundamentals of the uh, animated complaints there are not without some merit, and I think it's incumbent upon us to. Um, to acknowledge that and to try to deal with it. Well, it's what I've asked to try to separate out is the, if you have Black Lives Matter as just a statement, which as a statement sure. is true, is just a, it is a true statement that Black Lives Matter just, you know, it, you, you have some people with compulsion to fill in that all lives matter. Yes, the all lives matter, Black Lives Matter. And then you have it as an organizing ethos that has drawn mm-hmm. people, you know, I, I'm in Chicago at the moment, and it draws people out of their homes to go downtown and, and organize and demonstrate. And then you have the organization itself, Black Lives Matter, which does pretty clearly espouse um, the Marxist principles that, that you've outlined. Yeah. I think it's a, well, it's a little bit like... Um how a lot of people on the right got the, the civil rights movement wrong in the 1950s and 1960s, where, yes, there were radicals involved with the guess it was infiltrated by communists. Yes, it was being used and exploited by all sorts of nefarious parties for all sorts of nefarious ends. But the fundamental issue they were on the right side of, and those who opposed them were fundamentally on the wrong side of. And um, now that doesn't mean that the policy details don't matter. They certainly do. Um, you know, if I could go back and rewrite the way that these issues were, were addressed in the past, I would certainly make some different choices. Um, but I think that it helps to start the argument um, in our time um, with that acknowledgement. And I think that will lead us to uh, make more intelligent choices about what sorts of solutions that we're willing to put forward and what sort of compromises we're willing to accept and what sort of parties we're willing to work with and not willing to work with. Um, I think it's, um, you know, it's an issue that requires a good deal more thoughtfulness and discretion and discrimination than we currently expect from our political discourse. 
It's the famous Warner Sombart question, why is there no socialism in America? And if my recollections of Sombart are correct, he pointed to, uh, among other things, our kind of lack of a feudal past as a big explanation for that. Um, we, we've discussed kind of the growing acceptance of socialism. Do you see socialism growing in favor in America in the future and beyond just the, as we've discussed before, the kind of yeah, there will always be the college students who say they're socialists because it's cool. But do you see it? We see Bernie Sanders gaining a lot of traction within the Democratic Party. Um, do you see a major role for socialism as an ideology and a set of ideas and as a political movement in the future? Um, in the United States? Yes. Not not exactly. I think it's um, it's subsumed within a, a different kind of identity politics. I mean, a certain kind of, you know, classic Marxist socialism never evolved in the United States because we don't have a proletariat, exactly. Uh, you know, Marxism is very philosophy that appeals to uh, downtrodden and oppressed industrial workers. In the United States, the industrial workers actually have done pretty well. Um, you know, a factory job in the United States is something people look forward to, not something people dread. Uh, it's considered you know, pretty good work. So... We avoided that because the sorts of um, positions and classes that were traditionally the hotbed of, of classical Marxism were essentially co-opted by American success, and they were sedated by um, uh, by their lack of privation. What's probably more attractive in the United States context is something more like Maoism, uh, because the real divide in the United States isn't between the working class and the people who own the capital. It's between the people who work and the people who don't. You know, most of our, and I, and I don't say that in a, you know, sneering kind of way, that most of our really heaviest and unpleasant and destructive social dysfunction tends to fall very heavily on communities where there's not a lot of work, um, where there's not a lot of opportunity for employments, where such opportunities for employment as there are, are very low paying and insecure and often seasonal and that sort of thing. So um, we have, um, this growing divide in our society that people talk about, and they're not entirely wrong to point to it, but the issue isn't the fact that a bunch of people in Silicon Valley are making just absurd amounts of money and that you know Mark Zuckerberg and Peter Thiel and people like that can afford to buy yachts bigger than we used to have for, for Navy vessels and, and all the rest of it. The issue is the people at the other end of the spectrum who are at the bottom, um, because if you've got you know sort of growth at the top and stagnation at the bottom, you're always going to have more distance between the two because it's always compared to what and what's compared to is zero, essentially. Um, so we could be doing things, I think, to make life radically better for people who come from and are in communities that don't traditionally have a lot of economic opportunities, a lot of opportunities for um, advancement and uh, social mobility and all that kind of stuff. But weirdly, our politics is entirely focused on the billionaires as though the people at the bottom were poor because Mark Zuckerberg and Peter Thiel and Bill Gates and uh, those people are wealthy, which just simply isn't the case. But it's much easier to have a politics of resentment and a politics of envy. And it's also easier to talk about um, these famous, uh, glamorous, inherently interesting people than it is to talk about what's actually going on in a place like Baltimore or Philadelphia or parts of San Antonio and um, in places like that. You know, we've been having these these conversations about um, 
Well, I'll tell you what's a great example of this. I love, uh, I read the New York Times every day. And the New York Times is a great window into the interests and obsessions of the American ruling class. And so with all the Black Lives Matter stuff going on, the Me Too stuff going on, there have been these stories about, well, what is it like? What does this mean for people who work on Broadway? <laughs> what does this mean for people who are museum directors, work in galleries? Uh, what does this mean for the luxury travel industry? And, and, and that sort of thing. And uh, it's never about, you know, have you noticed the high school dropout rate in New York City, where, where our newspaper is based? It's pretty bad. Um, there was, oh man, there was this column. It was so so horrifying. This woman had been had been raped and had been, when she was young and she was just treated uh, horribly and the investigation was done badly and just everything, you know, wrong you can imagine. And she had this column in the Times that was, it was really hard to get a book deal for my story. Like, I understand that. And I understand the point you're making, but maybe the book deal is not the first thing that we need to be thinking about when it comes to uh, the situation with rape and, and other kinds of sexual assault in our country. So we tend to, um, the policymaking class is dominated by, I need a little Marxist analysis for you here. The policymaking class is dominated by a, um, a pretty small class of people. And so you'll see in the newspapers just obsessive coverage of what are the admission standards at Harvard like? And are they allowed to use race? And, um, you know, if you're an African-American person who is sort of borderline of getting into Harvard and your next best option in life is you go to Stanford instead, it's going to be okay for you. Um, these are not really the people in our country that have um, problems that require a big, deep public policy response. You know, borderline Ivy Leaguers are probably going to be okay in life. Maybe they have to go to some school like the University of Texas. You can have a perfectly nice life going to the University of Texas. Uh, it's the people who never finish high school that we really need to be thinking about. But our conversation is always focused in the opposite direction because it's driven by envy and resentment, and uh, but also by you know glamour and fascination. We would much rather talk about jet-setting billionaires than about poor people in poor neighborhoods in Chicago. Kevin Williamson is the roving correspondent for National Review, the author of The Smallest Minority, Independent Thinking in the Age of Mob Politics, author of the 2010 book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism, and he has the feature article in the August 24th edition of National Review entitled The Celestial Afterlife of Karl Marx. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at acton.org. Until next week, for Act in Line, I'm Eric Combe.